Hi, and welcome to Firefly Ignite, where we believe that one small story can ignite the world. On today's episode, we get to listen to author and humanitarian Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel writes about life at the crossroads of faith and culture, and her recent book is called Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. Rachel and I met many years ago when we were both living in Djibouti, East Africa, and I hope you enjoy tuning into our conversation. It's good to have you on the program, and I am excited to hear more of your story and uh, just for our listeners to be able to engage with your life and what you've learned the last few years, because there's been a lot of exciting adventures. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say one of the living legacies of your family for my family here in Djibouti is that we bought your car. Yes. When you left. (laughs) And uh, that car has been through a lot of trauma. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to say many car accidents, but I often would think of you. We don't own it anymore. We actually were finally able to get rid of it after many accidents, but I did keep, I remembered you and thought of you guys over the years because that was always part of our life. I think we just sold it last year. And so Wow, that lasted a long time for it did being in Africa, you know, and um, you know we loved that car and really were sad to have to let it go. But we live in England and the steering wheel is on the other (laughs) side, so there wasn't much we could do. But I'm glad you got some life out of it. Right. So originally, yeah, I'm from Minnesota in the United States. I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis and went to the University of Minnesota. So that's like my whole childhood was in that one location. And then pretty much my whole adulthood has been in the Horn of Africa because we came here when I was 23, I believe we moved to the Horn of Africa. So yeah, that's just a little bit of where I'm from. Okay. Okay. Minneapolis has the largest population of Somalis in the United States. And so that's the connection to this region. Okay. Yeah. Minneapolis, which is, um, a city that has hit world news recently. So how is that for you living on one one side of the globe whilst so many things are going on in the city that you grew up in? Yeah, it is. um, I mean, the streets that I've been seeing on the news are like my streets, the streets we lived on, the streets my parents even lived on when they were young. And um, it's been really... Uh, like the emotions are complicated. Um, I'm devastated by what happened to George Floyd. I watched as much as I could of the video before I had to turn it off. And, um, and just knowing where that happened and the experiences of so many friends of color um, in that area, especially for me, my connections have mostly been Somali Minnesotans, but for African-Americans who have been there generationally, it's just been, there's been a lot of, imbalance racially for years and so things just really ignited and then on top of the coronavirus lockdown you know you have one a spark a big spark that went off with George Floyd's death and then things really exploded and um it was just really strange to be for me here on this side of the ocean to be contacting friends there and saying are you safe are you okay how are you emotionally um how are your kids handling this you know usually those are the questions that we are getting And so it was really 
interesting to to be here and um we're also here even the coronavirus is pretty well contained and um i don't feel afraid of that and then in the united states it felt for a long time out of control and so again there was that just a very different kind of emotional experience where usually people are checking in on us are you safe during this flood are you safe during this political unrest are you you know safe from this terrorist attack and and so um yeah, it was just a different experience. I think it was really good for me. That's maybe, that's not what I mean to say. Um, I think it was a, an exercise in empathy and compassion to turn my attention that direction towards the United States. I think there's a, oftentimes, as an expat here, like I feel a burden to let people know what's happening in this part of the world. Um, but then to also recognize that my heart is planted actually in two places and um, and I care about both and I need to be invested emotionally and uh, relationally in both of these places. So I'm not even sure if that fully makes sense, but it makes for this really intense emotional experience that um, of trying to love and care about two places, especially when there's these global crises. It's, it's been a lot. Um, but I am thankful for what I see of my community in Minnesota coming out to support each other, to protect each other, to protest together. Um, yeah. And so that's been yeah. positive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can, um, understand how, um, how it would be difficult seeing things happening on the other side of the world. And like you said, in an odd way, the tables have been turned where mm -hmm. most of the time it will be your friends checking in on you. And so mm -hmm. um, for you to actually be able to have that experience as well of checking in on family and friends. Yeah. And, you know, I've been, I've thought a lot about being a white woman in Africa, trying to do humanitarian work, um, trying to build relationships cross-culturally, cross-racially, cross class, you know, all these different things. I thought a lot about that as a white woman in this country where um, there's a colonial history. It's a former French colony where we live now. And so, and that's a recent history. They just got independence in 1977. And so, yeah, I've, I've thought about that. I've wrestled with that. I've talked with local friends about those issues. I've written about it. Um, but I, and I have done some reading and some learning about racial issues, of course, from my education as an American, but even as an adult, reading, listening to podcasts. Um, but my day-to-day -day life has not been lived in that reality of racial dynamics in the United States. And so it's been really interesting for me to try to think through the differences, their similarities in the racial issues on both sides of the ocean, but they're different. Um, and so I've just been really trying to be careful and wise and thoughtful in in how I'm approaching this U.S. side. I haven't lived there in almost over 18 years. Um, and so, yeah, I just have a lot of wrestling to do with that side. Right. Yes, that makes sense. And it, it, it's different on whatever location you're in. You, you can't mm -hmm. just say, well, it's, it's like this, you know, across the board. So, um, yeah, and and we'll we'll get into a little bit more of what what you've been doing, what you've been writing about, because I know you have spent a lot of time wrestling this through, thinking it through. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I think one question I have as well is, um, you know, how did you as a, as, as you described in some of your writings, white, middle-class American woman end up in the Horn of Africa? So I know you said, uh, you know, you began um, sort of a, a relationship with the Somalis in your city, but at what point in, in your life, or was there a moment uh, when you began to think, I might not live in the status quo. I, I think my life is going to look different. Mm, that's a really good way of putting the question. Um, I think, so, so I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I, had, I have been given a lot of good things, um, a solid family supportive network, physical health until I turned 40. <laughs> um, but, you know, good education, uh, access to a lot of things. And I just knew that I'd been given a lot. And so when I was younger, pretty young, like high schoolish into, into college, I just felt like the best thing for me to do with all the things I've been given is to give out of that. Um, it didn't feel like I didn't want to pursue kind of a typical American dream of a house in the suburbs and, you know, 2.5 kids or whatever it is. And just to be investing in building my own little kind of safe kingdom of comfort and ease. I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself. Um, and I didn't really know what that would look like or where it would necessarily be. It didn't have to be cross-culturally. I mean, internationally, uh, but I wanted to be part of doing good in some way. Not because I felt like I could save anybody or, or uh, you know, change the world, but, but because I do believe that the world is broken. I think that there's a lot of pain and even in my own life and experiences, and I just wanted to be a part of making something beautiful if I could be, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and so from a young young age, I knew I wanted to um, give out of the blessing that I had been given. And then my husband and I, when we were first married, we were uh, both college students and so had very low income. And so we were living in this a low income apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis that was close to the University of Minnesota. And um, the majority at that time of the other occupants were Somali because that was right, well, several years after the civil war had broken out. And so they had been coming to the U S as refugees. And so most of our neighbors were from the Horn of Africa. And, um, my husband wanted to be a professor. That was what he was, his education was moving toward. And then we had these friends around us starting to tell us like, there's actually a university in Somalia where you could come and work. And we were like, Somalia, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, we only ever heard about the war and the danger and the risks and, kidnapping and all these terrible things. Um, but people started to explain to us, there's a Northern region that's peaceful. There's a functional university. We really are looking for people like you because we also didn't want to go somewhere and like take someone else's job that a local person could do. But they said, we want native English speakers with American university training to come and invest at this university. And so, um, so it seemed like something that, 
you know, it wouldn't be us forcing ourselves into a place. We were being invited to come and do what we were trained to do or what he was trained to do. I was at that time we had toddler twins. And so I was focused on the kids. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the practical step of how we got there. So it's um, like most things in life, it, it's a process, isn't it? It's a journey. Um, but there's always these moments usually that where we begin to have this awareness and awakening really to maybe something that is part of our destiny. And uh, so it's, it's neat to hear part of the motivation was I've been given so much and I want to give some of it away, you know, so Mm -hmm. what a, what a great uh, motivation to, to want to do something different and, um, and to, to live differently than what you'd known. And that's not a, an easy step, but having, having lived as an expatriate myself um, in different countries. And for me personally, there's, um, there's a contentment in knowing this is what I'm, this is what I'm meant to do. This is mm-hmm. where I'm meant to be. And so it's, it's not, um, it's, it's perhaps not the sacrifice that maybe people like to, to put it on a pedestal as mm-hmm. it can be. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's sacrifice, there's difficulty, especially, uh, not living near to family, you know, the, mm-hmm. our grandparents, you know, and, my kids not being able to see family, there's a, there's a cost, uh, but um, it's not as though it's a daily burden in the sense that I know I'm, I'm where I'm meant to be. So mm-hmm. would, you, would you say the same for yourself? Yeah, there's a, a deep sense of contentment, satisfaction. Um, and I think a large part of it for me comes from just that we've had to utterly be learners. Like we've had to cast ourselves on the local community and on our faith to, to make it through some things that um, like, I I was thinking about it recently and um, Somalia and Djibouti compared to Minnesota are about as different as you could get. And in Somalia land, we were in a village even. So I, I didn't grow up in a village. I didn't grow up in a farm area. I grew up in the city basically. And, um, but by going someplace so outside our comfort zone and, um, there was no way that I was going to be effective. Like I knew right away going into this, this is not about what I can accomplish here. (laughs) And so everything that I look back on that I've learned or, or maybe accomplished in some way, whether it's learning Somali language or being able to develop relationships, has been because I've had to learn everything from my community. And that just has been deeply satisfying. Um, It does require humility. It requires repentance when I've made mistakes and fumbled around. But it has absolutely stripped me of any idea that, um, that in myself I'm able to accomplish great things because actually my husband, when he first went, he took a a kind of a trip to go look at the university and make sure like I I could actually bring my wife and children to this place. Um, And when he was flying back on the plane, he just had this kind of like a thought of Somaliland is way too hard for us. We cannot do this. And so we better do it (laughs) because anything good that would come out of it would not be, we couldn't take credit for it. 
um, we'd have to rely on that local community. We'd have to rely on our faith. And so somehow, um, I think that that willingness to be utterly stripped of our own competencies has helped me now looking back after all these years. Um, and there is a sense of, yeah, real satisfaction and contentment that this has been good. It's not been easy, like you said, but it's not been, um, it's not been like a major sacrifice of horrible proportions or something. Right, right. That's amazing though that, that Tom would say, I don't think we can do it, which means we need to do it. So mm-hmm. not everyone would do that. So, um, so you moved to uh, Somaliland. Tom worked as a professor. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, how long were you there for? We moved there in 2003 early, left the United States in January. And we actually only were there until October of 2003. Okay. And then in January 2004 came to Djibouti. Right. 2003 was a momentous year, wasn't it, for you as a family? So you moved to Somaliland thinking, we'll be here for a while, you know, let's see how this goes. Let's plant Mm -hmm. our lives here. Let's, you know, um, get to know our community. And after, what is it, eight months, nine months, Mm -hmm. 10 months there, everything changes. So tell me what happened. It feels like so long ago, and yet that experience has been, was what launched us into the next 17 years in Djibouti, because we didn't plan to come to Djibouti. We thought we'd be in Somaliland. We figured at least until the kids hit like first grade or so, so four years, and then we weren't sure what we would do after that. So he was teaching. Uh, Things were okay. It was it's a small, at that time it was smaller, a small village. Um, we were some of the only foreigners there. I think at that time there was seven adult foreigners in the city, in the village. Um, and the community had really welcomed us. Like it was, there's a lot of learning and some cross-cultural stuff. I just, it was really challenging, but they had decided we want you to be here as teachers. And so we will do what we need to do to help you adjust and, um, and be safe. And so, you know, Somaliland is a, a breakaway Republic from the South. And so they're trying to be established as a nation and it was relatively peaceful and it had been for a long time, but it was still Somalia and there was still limited government. Everybody had guns, which now actually you don't see in Somaliland. But at that time, you know, you'd go to the market and everyone had guns and our guard had a gun he kept under his bed. Um, the university where my husband worked had armed guards if I went to a wedding there'd be an armed guard outside things like that and at that time there was a woman working in the village named Annalina Tonelli and she was Italian and she worked at this tuberculosis center she'd actually been there for several years and she'd been in the Horn of Africa since um, 1969 and so she was working with tuberculosis patients and um, people with HIV and things like this and she was assassinated in October inside the tuberculosis clinic. And that was just a few blocks away from our house. And she was one of those seven or eight foreigners in the town at the time. And so that started the process of us evacuating from the country. Initially, we first actually just went to the capital city, Hargeisa, 
and spent a week in, we lived in this hospital for a while, us and another family. Um, it was Edna Adden's hospital and she's been featured by Nicholas Kristoff in Half the Sky, his book. Um, so she was kind of sheltering us there as we tried to figure out what was going on and as the local pe authorities tried to understand, you know, are these people safe or should we get them out? And eventually people decided, I don't, we don't really know for sure, but we think it's okay. So let's just go back under more security, more restrictions of movement and see what happens. And um, we decided at that point, like, we don't really want to live this way, but let's just go back for a little bit and kind of finish the semester. Within a few days, another British couple who were teachers were shot and killed. And so that kind of exposed that there's something bigger here going on. And so us and every other foreigner in the country left. We had um, 30 minutes to pack a suitcase and a backpack and drive to the capital and flew out right away. And I didn't actually go back until 2014. Um, my husband went back a little bit later. But, but yeah, that was it. That was the end of what we thought would be a couple of years. Um, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do next. We weren't ready at that point. Like nine months, what's that? That's nothing to invest in a place or to do all this work to get to a place like that. So we weren't ready to leave the region yet. Um, and then through some Samoa Somali contacts from that university there, we were invited, my husband was invited to come and teach in Djibouti at the university here. And so that is how we got here in January 2004. And then we just kept on staying. <laughs> That's a dramatic entrance into Djibouti, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, re I remember you telling me about uh, your evacuation and also the time when you had a, a week at the, the Edna Adden Hospital. And, and at our, yeah. I just remember you telling me that uh, you wished you'd brought toys for your kids. There's no, um, there was no iPads, there was no pretty much no internet, even, you know, right. 2003, think any Somalia. So every night Edna would open her office for us. And so we could access her computer and dial up to this right. you know, <laughs> internet. So we could email our families and tell them that we were still okay. And then she'd, you know, we'd all, we would do that. This other family would do that. But yeah, we had one DVD, which, oh my goodness, was the Scooby-Doo movie of like the right. adults. I can't, this is a kind horrible, of scary movie. <laughs> for toddlers. So <laughs> yes, that's what we had. And then we had like very little furniture. I think there was a couple, I remember like two chairs and two mattresses and there was two families living in this apartment. And so we would use, sleep on the mattresses and then pull them out in the daytime to be couches. And the kids, like I had the toddlers, the other family had a toddler and the wife was pregnant. And yeah, it was incredibly, um, it was like being on lockdown with no right, toys. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You can laugh about it now, but at the time, I'm sure it was yes. very difficult. So, okay, so you ended up in Djibouti and have been there since. And, uh, but that, you know, that, that moment uh, in your life, that period in your life where uh, you were evacuated because of this assassination uh, well, really three that had taken place, but one that start, sort of started the process um, really kind of was 
was life-changing for you, wasn't it? I, I, I've mm-hmm. just recently um, read your book. I've got to say it uh, wrecked me. I mean, it was in a, in a beautiful, very challenging way. Um, and it's, it's both a, it's a biography about this woman's life. Um, and in some ways a, a, a partial autobiography, you know, about mm-hmm. your journey and the impact that it's had on you. And, um, after I read it, I said to my husband, I really wish Rachel had written this before we moved to the Horn of Africa. <laughs> um, obviously, you had only just begun this journey, really, of understanding who she was and researching it, um, but it gives such a, a great insight into that region of the world and the, you know, the dramatic history that it's been through, and as well as this woman who uh, really stood as a beacon of light for so many people. And so um, I'd love to hear about your journey with this book and in writing it and um, kind of sort of the changes that it brought about in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we when she was killed, I didn't know much about her at all. My husband had met her once before we even moved there and I never saw her even in town. She was always working, which was something she really was known for once I started researching, researching her life. Um, and it wasn't until about 2013 that, that another, like the um, husband of the other family who had lived in Somaliland with us, his name is Matt Erickson, and he had produced for the UNHCR a documentary about her life. And as he had done that work, he realized like this woman was pretty incredible. And then he approached me about writing her story um, because he just had kind of broached the beginning of it in that documentary. And so I started, I thought, oh, okay. I knew by that point, this was 2013, so 10 years later, I knew she had something to do with tuberculosis. That was about it. <laughs> and so I just kind of did a little Google search and realized like, oh my word, this woman, her work went back to 1969. She developed the treatment for tuberculosis among nomadic populations that is still used across the planet. She, um, she won this big refugee uh, UNHCR award. She started hospitals. She partnered with local doctors. I mean, she was, she fought with um, a Somali sheikh and a former Somali midwife, a Somali former midwife. Um, they formed a coalition to fight against female genital mutilation. She was treating people who had HIV when there was basically no treatment for them in the region. Um, and then she was murdered. Like I just, and, and everyone that I talked to, I started asking Somalis in Djibouti or people I knew on you know Facebook, different things in Minneapolis, what do you know about this woman? And they all loved her. I mean, just the stories that would flow out of people of their memories or their relatives who'd been healed by her or people who interacted with her. And so it was just as, um, I was struck by that difference of like, she did all these things really, um, partnering with local people and everybody really loved her. And then somebody killed her. Why? Um, and so that question drove the research and then it became even pretty personal because, we came, I, I saw a lot of myself in her, not actually in the same way of same character or um, she was unmarried. She didn't have children. 
So there's a difference there. Um, but just in that reality of being a white woman coming to the Horn of Africa to try to do something good. And I felt like, wow, she really, she really did it. <laughs> and I, uh, I don't really know um, if I have lived up to what I first thought that I would accomplish or something. But she was, um, you know, she had the, a commitment to living among the people. So she didn't have a pillow or a mattress or a bed because she said the poor don't have a pillow. So why would I have one? Um, she ate very little. She slept very little. She worked all the time, utterly devoted herself to serving the sickest people, the poorest people, oppressed people. And I am sitting here right now in my air conditioned, comfortable house with more than enough to eat. Like I just hadn't made those same radical choices. So I wanted to understand also, why did she make those choices? What compelled her? How did she sustain that way of living? Um, and felt pretty convicted often by comparison. And so part of the book is me wrestling through, through that and, um, and really coming down to, I don't think she would have judged me or other people for our ways of living. She just, this was her calling. And I think that as, this was really helpful for me to realize as a human population, those kinds of people, those Mother Teresa kinds of people, um, you know, Martin Luther King kind of people are rare and they're precious and special. And we're not all going to do that. We're not all going to live that way, but we need those kind of examples to pull us up out of our complacency and to, to push us to something better. If we didn't have a few of those shining examples, I think we would just, um, flounder in lackadaisicalness. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah, certainly. While I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, <laughs> my life does not look like hers in any way. And should it, you know, there's, there's this really great sort of, um, uh, self-analysis that takes place while you're reading it, because you see this, this woman who gave everything, um, and, and willingly and without, you know, big, begrudging her choices and, um, and then looking at my own life and thinking, you know, have I, have I given or have I held back? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, and obviously each of our choices will impact uh, what, what our lives will look like, but, and all of our stories are different. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of it is, is like you said, realizing, wow, this, this woman really did have a very unique call. And, mm -hmm. and there was, as we discussed earlier, there's, there is a contentment that comes in knowing that you're right where you need to be, you know? And mm -hmm. so, um, so she would often, you know, you know, um, kind of say, you know, I'm not a hero. I'm, I'm a nobody, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm doing what I, what I love to do, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and, um, but I think that, you know, I've, I've got a quote here from the book that I think sort of touches on some of what you've said, where it says, we want to be world changers and it's hard to admit that we are weak, only strong enough to love one person at a time. Annalena proves that love in action is simple, yes, but it is also profound enough to truly change the world. And I, I love that because she modeled love in action by looking at the person right in front of her. Mm -hmm. And by doing that over and over and over, then she has this, you know, 
massive <laughs> group of people all spread across the world now who would say I was loved by her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of mind blowing to think about. I, I literally have been in, I think, five different countries where people have told me that, have come up to me and said, she, basically, she loved me. I was on an airplane going to actually flying from Djibouti to Italy to meet her family. And the people in front of me was a Somali couple, a Djiboutian Somali couple that I know from the U.S. Embassy. And they asked me where I was going. And I said, I'm going to meet the brother of this woman, Annalena Tonelli. And the husband said, oh, she saved my father's life during the war on the airplane. <laughs> I was doing a book talk in Minneapolis at a used bookstore in October after the book came out. And a Somali man came and I started talking with him a little bit. And he said, so she was, a, there was a massacre when she lived in Kenya, Northern Kenya. And she was a part of rescuing people from this massacre that had happened. And because of that, she got kicked out of the country. And he said, so one of the reasons she got kicked out of the country was because she had been keeping lists of the names of the dead and she smuggled them out inside the, the clothing. They sewed it into the clothing of people that were leaving the region. And he was the guy who had those, that list of names sewn into his clothing this Somali man who ends up in Minneapolis and he said, she saved my people. I mean, she like, it was just incredible to hear these stories from people all over the world, literally. And he wasn't looking at her as like a, like this, then I had to wrestle with this idea of white savior. He, she's a white lady. She's in Africa. He said, she saved my people. Um, so I had to address this issue of race. And he said, and many of every single Somali that I asked this question to, they said, yeah, she was a white lady in Africa. Yeah. She saved my life. She saved my life. I'm okay with that. And she did it in a way that wasn't glorifying herself. It wasn't about getting Annalena praise and glory. She would have probably not wanted this book written, <laughs> you know, to be honest, because she did it. She did kept saying, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. I don't matter. Um, and, and so this wasn't about her having some kind of complex about saving people. It was about her coming alongside what people wanted and needed from her, um, and then and then feeling loved and blessed by her, not not uh, controlled or dominated in some way for her own sake. Right. Yeah. And you know, as I as I was reading it, you know, it just it's so poignant for today. And even all that's going on and has sort of escalated, even just in the last mm -hmm. few weeks across the world. Um, another another quote here that that's that she's talking about how how to love the person in front of you, how to mm -hmm. love a single person, and she said, "To love is to be near, to listen, and to try to understand." you know, how poignant are those words for yeah. what's going on right now? Um, and to, yeah. to it, it's this idea of rather than moving away from something that makes us uncomfortable and we don't know what mm -hmm. to do with it, it's, it's the act of taking a step towards and, and listening and trying mm -hmm. to understand um, mm -hmm. and, and that being a bridge for, for love to be able to pass over. So, um, 
so relevant for, mm-hmm. for any of us as we wrestle through some of the current issues that are happening as well. You know, you've recently started a campaign called uh, Do Good Better. Yeah, so this is a newsletter on Substack that I've been, I just started about a month ago. Um, and it is called Do Good Better. And so people can find it that way. But I, I like complicated conversations. I've been kind of, I wasn't able to identify that about myself until recently. But as I look back at what I write, I do wrestle as I write. Like, I don't know what I think. And I'm always in process. And so even I'll go back and look at an essay I wrote a couple of years ago, and I maybe would say it differently now or change something now. But I like digging into complicated discussions and in safe places where people are able to actually listen and really have conversations and not just be shouting opinion at each other. Um, And I see in my line of work as in this development world as a white American female Christian living in the Horn of Africa, there's a lot of complicated conversations that happen around leadership and money and um, family life choices and all these different things. Like there's no simple answer to stuff. And I, I just was getting tired of simplistic responses to things, whether it would be from, Um, a political perspective or religious perspective. I just don't think there's simple answers to things. And um, as I looked at Annalena's life, she went through this process of transformation, even as she lived and worked and she was transparent about that. Uh, So for example, in the seventies, she had been having some young girls come and live in her home who were either orphaned or they were getting treatment and their parents were out in the bush as nomads. So these girls were living with her and she actually um, hired a local midwife to come and perform female genital mutilation on these girls in her home, which when I first read that, I thought, what is happening? I've never heard of a humanitarian, a foreign humanitarian engaging in this practice. Um, It's always been, the foreign humanitarian fighting the practice. But then 30 some years later, she was giving a speech in, or maybe 25 years later in Northern Somaliland when she lived there. Um, And she said, now I'm fighting against this practice. She had partnered with a local religious leader, a local midwife, and then they were fighting the practice together. And she explained her transformation of, of that, change of her understanding of her I know she repented she just in her life I saw this example of growth and willingness to go into the hard conversation of yes I did that and now I don't and this is why Um, and I feel like so many times people like you said there we are disinclined to push into a hard conversation because it's uncomfortable and it probably will require that we change in some way, either our action or our behavior or our mindset. Um, And so it's easier just to say, I'm doing good enough. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing good over here. I'm doing a little good there. It's good enough. Um, And I just think that we can do good better. We have to do good better. I have to do good better. I think that's another thing that it comes down to. Like I look at the challenge I felt from Annalena or the ways I engage here and I can do better. And I want other people to kind of, to sharpen me. I want to hear from their input and their experiences. And I want to push into hard conversations. 
um, about how things like how how is faith expressed cross-culturally or cross-religiously how is how is the history of colonialism actually having an impact on this country still and how am I a part of that in some way and how can I help to change that uh, just all kinds of things I have I have a list of hundreds of topics that could be addressed in this way of um, those of us who are wannabe do-gooders and how can we help each other to do good better and so so yeah that's kind of where it came out of just this desire to have um, tangled wrestling conversations in a safe place where people can be honest what's interesting actually is that that's my goal for it is that people will be able to be transparent and honest in the comment section and things like that. But I've had several people email me personally and say, this is my response. I don't feel comfortable sharing it publicly because I don't feel safe because the world is so inclined to shout at each other and to, to take something out of context or to not appreciate a growth process. And then, so if you say something that maybe isn't quite right, you know, the, the tendency to get jumped on for that is scary. And so um, I'm glad they're still emailing me so that we can still engage privately in conversation. Um, but it's interesting that still there is that real, uh, right now, hesitancy to be honest about our questions and our processes and our thinking, okay, this is what I think. I know it needs to change, but I, you know, but help me change it. And if we can't vocalize that and we can't have the pushback, how are we going to change and grow? So that's yes. kind of my, my heart behind it. Yes. Yeah. Those conversations being essential. And like mm -hmm. you said, creating a, a platform in which people can communicate honestly without, without the fear of, you know, the, the attack from the other side or, um, mm -hmm. the pushback, because I think so many people are not really, there, there are so many who are not out for a fight um, mm -hmm. and really do want to have conversation about it. And, and I think what you've said about growth is so important that we have to, we have to give space for, uh, for one another to have a process of growth. You know, mm -hmm. we, we do that naturally with our children. You know, we, <laughs> we we're great. We're gracious with them as they're learning to walk and learning to feed themselves and learning to form sentences. You know, we're not, mm -hmm. we're not harsh on them because they have to, um, learn over a period of time mm -hmm. and yet somehow when we get to adults you know mm -hmm. we think well this is how it is this you know nothing's going to oh. change you know um yeah. and it's I um, forbid that i be the same person at 60 that i am today i do not want to have the same ideas maybe the same ideas but they better be deeper or right. changed yes i'm so glad that i am not still the person i was when i was 20 yes and if we are all stuck with who we think we are when we're 20 and don't allow for growth. That that's a scary world that I don't think I want to live in. You know, we better be growing right. and changing until the day we die. And so yes. that idea that we can't let each other process is just so defeating to me in terms of how, how can we learn to love the person in front of us if we're not allowed to grow and change? Yes. Because I did we were set that when I was 20 and I hope that when I'm 60, I'll look back and say, I've grown, you know, it's so frustrating. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. And, and, um, for those who knew me 
in my early 20s and I haven't been in contact with a lot, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, I, you know, get to know who I am now. <laughs> I'm yes. a lot different than I used to be. I've changed, you know, and, yes. um, and it's not all, you know, bad things, but it's just, there's, there's, there's growth that has happened, yes. you know, and so um, we just have to give space for that. I just want to say with all these things of trying to do good better or trying to uh, love the person in front of you, trying to figure out race conversations, I feel like we have to actively choose courage. And so I want to just urge people to make that choice. Choose courage. Like I often, I do these things like move to Somalia or run a marathon in Somalia that look brave, but I am terrified almost all the time. I feel like I'm a... I'm a scared person masquerading as a brave person because it comes down to making these choices um, and, and doing something while you're afraid anyway, just doing it, choosing courage. And so choose to move into the hard conversation or to, you know, step into that relationship. Um, and that courage I think comes out of having a very strong, deep conviction of being loved. And for me, that's being loved as I said, I'm a Christian. So being loved by God, that source of love can come from someplace else, but being deeply grounded in the reality that as we make mistakes and as we feel afraid and as we choose courage, that truth of being loved does not change. Um, so living out of that identity, making choices for courage, that's what I want to encourage listeners to do. That's great. And that choice to be courageous then also results in growth, doesn't it? Because mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. live and we learn as a result. So thanks so much, Rachel, for being with us today. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So great to hear from Rachel today. You can visit her at her website, rachelpiejones.com, P-I-E-H, Rachel Pie Jones, or stay in touch with her through Do Good Better, which is a Substack newsletter. Thanks again, everyone.